Running on that road winds God knows you don't need it Too early you might be the one Find yourself somewhere else Too early in the sun Hello and welcome to Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by Fangraphs and baseball and our Patreon supporters. This is episode 1042. I'm all out of sequence. I am Jeff <laughs> Sullivan of Fangraphs, talking as usual with Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Hello, Ben. Hello. Did you suffer a spontaneous sympathetic nasal structure yesterday when <laughs> Keon Broxton was hit by a baseball? I assume you two are psychically linked in some sense now. I might have gotten as many get well messages after that as Keon Broxton did. I'm just <laughs> going to guess, but I was I was relieved to read after the fact that he suffered a broken nose and will not go on the disabled list. So yeah. Keon Broxton, <laughs> he is fantastic and he is making a decision like a true experienced skateboarder who has probably banged himself up pretty good in the past. Yep. Good thing he was wearing that C flap. <laughs> did it uh, did it actually catch him on the flap? Because I it think it did, yeah. It looked like it did, and he said afterward that everyone should wear it, that he was deciding whether to use it or to just use the traditional padding helmet in spring training and he decided to go with the one with the flap and i guess it's a good thing that he did yeah still broke his nose though it could be the case though that there's a peltzman effect at work here are you familiar with the peltzman effect i think there are other names for it but the idea that if you do something to increase your safety, you will subconsciously do something else to put yourself at risk so that there's kind of an equilibrium so that, say, if a bike rider wears a helmet, he or she will feel safer and thus might be more willing to take a risk that he or she wouldn't. If there was no helmet involved, I don't know whether that actually evens out. I would think that it's still safer to have a helmet probably for a bike rider. But I wonder whether if you have a more protective helmet at the plate, a pitcher might be subconsciously more likely to buzz you up and in. Yeah, I guess it would have to be that because I don't think a hitter would be more likely to put his head in the way of a pitch to baseball. But yeah, we're <laughs> learning. Not. We're going over that a lot. I'm taking a currently like a mountaineering class that stretches uh-huh. for a couple of months and we've been talking about that when when discussing avalanche awareness and risk where there have been a lot of improvements in backcountry gear and mm-hmm. safety technology in the last few decades and so as a result more and more people are getting trapped in avalanches because they're just they <laughs> think that they are safer and so they just put themselves in more treacherous territory and i guess it's the same yep. with yeah helmets or or seatbelts in cars where all of a sudden people are driving 60, 70, 80 miles per hour or more. Sometimes people even go faster than that, if you can believe it. It's crazy. Yeah, we just have some inherent amount of death wish, I guess. And no matter what we do, we just have to fall back to that level. Yeah, we all just want to feel. <laughs> so I was just going to bring up, there have been a bunch of responses to our discussion yesterday on the email show about the hypothetical where the person can see a player's final stat line. And we talked about how quickly a person with that ability could get a job in baseball. And we were talking mostly about prospects and how you'd be great at projecting prospects. And maybe in a year or two, your prospect rankings would look really accurate and you'd you'd get hired. And a few people pointed out that an even better way to demonstrate that you had this ability maybe would be to predict the final career stat lines of players who are very close to retirement. So if you know, for instance, what 
David Ortiz had done through 2015, then you could predict his 2016 stats by looking at the difference between the through 2015 stats and the final stat line that you somehow magically mysteriously know. So that is true, and then you'd only have to wait one year. The downside is that you would have to do it only for players who announce that they are retiring in that coming year, and they don't always stick to that declaration either. But I guess there are enough guys who are close to the end, and you could pretty much wager that they're on their last legs, that you could do it, and maybe that would be quicker and more impressive. Yeah, uh, I guess... If it's this year, who would you pick? We don't have anyone, right? We don't have a... No, there's no retirement tour going on right now. So who's who's old? (laughs) Koji Uehara says he wants to keep playing. Ichiro says he wants to play until he's 50 goddamn years old. Right. (laughs) The oldest player on the Padres is like 32. (laughs) It's like Cologne and Dickie, but they haven't really shown much sign of falling off or wanting to stop. Yeah, right. And if you get to that age and you're still pitching successfully, well, you can tell that Cologne basically just throws one pitch at 88 miles per hour and it works, so he could go forever. And Dickie doesn't even do that, so he could go forever. So I don't I don't know who we could pick here unless yeah. you could find I don't know. No, probably not Matt Holiday. I don't know if you could just find someone who you just maybe you find the difference between the known end of career numbers and the difference mm-hmm. between current numbers and then you just figure out, well, like this guy clearly isn't going to play more than one more year and then you just yeah. try that. But yeah, right. failing that, I don't you know. You could just predict. I mean, if a guy's close enough to the end, you don't really even have to do the subtraction. You could just say these are what his final career stats are going to be and hopefully it'll be only a year or two away and that should in theory be equally impressive that's true yeah i guess you could probably do that for each row and then no matter when he ends up then it's still going right. to be amazing uh-huh okay yeah a few people pointed that out so good point everyone mm-hmm. so i don't know do you have anything else nope okay well the only thing i wanted to talk about before we talk about more stuff is i wanted to point out that on thursday in a game between the phillies and the reds which is a game that was watched by people who did that <laughs> intentionally. There was a, a very neat thing that happened. You you might remember that last, I think it was last August, Michael Lorenzen, uh, reliever for the Reds, he was on the bereavement list. Uh, his father passed away, and then two days later, he came back, and he was, uh, he was a reliever at this point. He started four, but he was converted into the bullpen where he got good, and he was in the bullpen, and he pitched an inning, and then his spot in the order came up, and so they allowed him to hit, and he hit a home run, and it was very emotional, and it was voted, I believe, by Zach Buchanan's readers or maybe just Cincinnati.com readers as the highlight of the Reds' entire season. Wow. So pretty powerful moment for Michael Lorenzen. Not a season full of many <laughs> highlights, of yeah, course. But... Certainly, certainly not a, a great thing if your season highlight is a reliever <laughs> hitting a home run in a game you're already winning by five. <laughs> right. But in any case, so Michael Lorenzen was a pitcher and a hitter at Cal State Fullerton. He was uh, he had a senior year in 2013. In that year, he was a very good pitcher. He had a sub-2 ERA, but he also was the best hitter on the team. He out-hit teammate Matt Chapman, who is an offense-first legitimate prospect for the Oakland A's. So there was some talk, again, from Zach Buchanan this spring, or I guess maybe more importantly from Michael Lorenzen, relayed to Zach Buchanan this spring, that Michael Lorenzen wants to be a something of a two-way player. He knows he can pitch. He's a super good reliever. I don't know if you've ever watched him. He's a Reds reliever, so no. But he throws hard. He gets a bunch of ground balls, strikes out a batter inning. He's really good. Really good fastball, cutter, whatever. 
but he also has some hitting talent. I think we already know he has some hitting talent on account of the fact that he does have a home run that he hit to center field. So he pitched in the Reds' first game. He pitched in the Reds' second game. So he was unavailable to pitch in the Reds' third game. So he was hanging around in the dugout, and the Reds also happened to be playing with a short bench. They have a an eight-man bullpen, or maybe more than that. I guess I haven't done the math. But they have a four-man bench, and the bench is not good. The best player on it is Scooter Jeanette. And yesterday, rookie Davis started for the Reds. He didn't last very long, so Scooter Jeanette pinch hit for a pitcher in the fourth inning. So in the <laughs> sixth inning, a pitcher spot comes up again, and Brian Price evaluates his options. He's got Tucker Barnhart. He's got Patrick Kivlahan. He's got Arismendi Alcantara. I don't know how to pronounce that name. He's got another player. It's a tie game. Sixth inning, two outs, nobody on. It's not really a high leverage spot, but whatever. A dinger can make a difference. So he calls for Michael Lorenzen to come up and pinch hit against Adam Morgan, who's a real pitcher. And then Michael Lorenzen takes a huge cut at 2-0, fouls the ball back, but it's an impressive looking cut. Count runs a 3-1. Michael Lorenzen hits a home run to straightaway center field. It leaves about at 108 miles per hour. It's a wonderful home run. The box score says the wind was blowing out strong to center field, but watching the highlight, it didn't matter. That ball was getting out of there. Michael Lorenzen has a pinch hit home run. It's the first pitcher pinch hit home run since 2009, which might seem more recent than you'd expect. But yeah. all of the recent pitcher pinch hit home runs have been hit by Brooks Kieschnick or uh, or the other one, Micah Owings. Micah Owings, right. They have combined for five. And the thing about those two is that I would say they were good at neither but they were capable at both. Like they could, they could hit fine. They were about average, and they could pitch okay. They were mop up men for the most part. I guess Michael Owings is actually still floating around, so maybe he'll make a comeback. But Michael Lorenzen <laughs> is presently trying to, I guess, take his role in a sense where uh, he now has two home runs. His career woba, if you want to call it that, it's uh, three eleven, which means he's hit about as well since he started hitting as Brandon Phillips in 2015 so Michael Lorenzen also a shutdown reliever so this is going to be a lot of fun the Reds clearly are never going to like let him play a position but mm -hmm. this introduces some options where if he is unavailable to pitch then he could be called on as a pinch hitter or maybe even more importantly I don't know you can now bring him in as a reliever sort of independent of the spot in the order you don't have to worry about that if he comes up you can just let him hit it seems like I don't want to make too much of the fact that he's gone deep twice in like 42 plate appearances, but clearly he is a, a pretty good hitter, maybe on the Madison Bumgarner level. Even if he's not quite on that level, he's still as good as what? Jeanette, Kivlahan, mm -hmm. Barnhart, <laughs> Alcantara. So uh, it'll be fun because now Brian Price can use him without having to, to worry about like double switches or anything. And I know that they've talked about using Lorenzen and Price Sale Iglesias as multi-inning relievers out there anyway. So now... If Lorenzen is in there to throw two innings and a spot comes up in the middle, oh, well, all the better. He's going to probably get more chances to hit because he's earned them, and uh, and this is fun. You don't yeah. often see pitchers getting well. You almost never see pitchers getting used like this. I think Jason Hamill did it a couple times with the Cubs last year for some reason, and Bruce Bochy has used pitchers alarmingly often to mm -hmm. pinch hit sometimes because I think he had a short bench at times last year. But yeah, this is going to be a lot of fun. There's also talk of Lorenzen pinch running, which is something that Andrew Kashner has done for the Padres. So this is for everyone who always asks who is going to be the next two-way player. Well, there probably isn't going to be a two-way player until Shohei Otani comes over, but Lorenzen at least will be able to pinch it or hit for himself, which is, I guess, kind of a two-way player. Is that a one-and-a-half-way player? <laughs> yeah, I think so. But this is cool. I like it. And both of the worst teams in baseball this year, I guess you could say probably the two worst teams in baseball this year, 
have experimented, are experimenting with some sort of two-way player, and that is fun. We always sort of say that if you're going to lose anyway, you might as well do some fun stuff like this, but... I would think that if anything, probably the opposite has been the case, that <laughs> losing teams have been less likely to do fun experimental stuff and teams that are actively trying to win do those things because they have more of a motivation to do things that they think will help them win. So it is nice that this is happening based on Christian Bethencourt's early results. It might not be yeah. happening for that much longer <laughs> yeah. in his case, but I like that someone's trying. There's the problem. Bethencourt has a career 569 LPS, which is bad, and he has a career limited sample, 16.2 OERA, which is bad. <laughs> yeah, according to Baseball Reference, he's actually currently the league leader in walks, which I did not know, <laughs> uh, given that yeah. he is a... He's thrown he 1.2 innings. Four. I think he walked four straight guys in his second appearance of the season. He has faced 24 batters in his four pitching appearances in the majors last year and this year, and he has walked nine of them. He struck out one, and he's also hit one and allowed a home run. So Christian Bethencourt has one of the worst pitching lines I've seen ever, uh, which <laughs> makes sense because he is not a pitcher, and he never has been until officially, I guess, what, the winter? Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, yep, I got nothing else on two-way players, so we can skip ahead a little bit to, I guess, this week's topic. I know on okay. your other podcast, you talked about trends from the first week that mm -hmm. might or might not continue, which is great. Related to that, I think it's almost unavoidable that this podcast also has to discuss the first week. So mm -hmm. what I thought that we could do is to just give sort of one-week updates on whatever strong opinions or moderately strong opinions we might have had about baseball players or teams before the year. So, for example, let's say that you had a strong opinion that the Cubs were going to be super good. Maybe that's not an original opinion or anything that's particularly remarkable, but the Cubs have played three games. So, have you seen anything from the Cubs in the first three games that would lead you to change your preseason belief by even one percentage point in either direction? And just as an idea, unless you have a point, you have a point. Well, not really. I was going to repeat the point we talked about on the last show, <laughs> right, when we talked about Jake Arrieta and his scarily decreasing velocity in his first start of the season. So, that's one thing, but uh, certainly nothing based on record or or results, really. Yeah, right. No, there's. I think there's there are zero conclusions to be reached based on what's actually happened in the games. Where I mean, who's who's the best team in the American League? The Twins, I believe. They're uh, <laughs> yes, undefeated. Yeah, the Twins three and zero, I believe. Mm -hmm. So you can. It's fun to sometimes go into the uh, the calculated playoff odds and see how things have shifted in the first few days because, of course, these games don't not matter so it's always fun to sort of evaluate like who's already made a difference but i think that that's just going to lead you to to a troublesome area so yeah mm -hmm. with the cubs i think that i would say that they seem a couple percentage points more vulnerable just because jake arietta's velocity seems to be down and john lester's velocity also seems to be down not to the same extent as arietta but lester has been one of the bigger velocity losers in the early going so if you have the Cubs who have the one perceived possible vulnerability of starting rotation depth, well, it's not good news to have their pitchers throwing slower. Although mm -hmm. you never know, they've had two deep postseason runs in a row. They could have just instructed their pitchers to chill or alternatively, maybe they're all just going out there like, what's the point? We just did it. <laughs> like, why? Why are we still trying to do this? <laughs> okay, so what's a strong opinion that you had about a baseball player or team uh, a week ago? Well, I was just going to bring up 
Bryce Harper, maybe, just that he came into the season having the best spring training of anyone, at least home run-wise, and he was a fascinating player, of course, because he was, if not the best player in baseball in 2015, certainly the second best And then a multitude of things happened. He was walked by everyone. He seemed to be potentially hiding an injury that he never admitted and never directly refuted either, although reportedly he told the team that he didn't have one and his agent. But there was something weird going on with Bryce Harper. And then at the same time that he was struggling... You and Rob Arthur dug into the StatCast stats and retroactively made him worse in 2015, which wasn't very nice. We had an effectively wild episode about that, too. You found that he had been extremely lucky on air balls. So a strong opinion I guess I had coming into this year was that Bryce Harper was going to be a lot better at baseball this year. There Mm -hmm. was a lot of positive buzz about his health and his preparation and his swing and his mechanics and you never really know what that means but the fact that he had eight homers in spring training lent some credence to that and uh he hit a home run on opening day which is something that he does every year so (laughs) it's hard to say what that means but he has not changed my optimism about him being great again which will make the nationals even more great again because they are uh, an excellent team even with a mediocre Bryce Harper so with almost best player in baseball Bryce Harper back again I think they could probably not run away with things but maybe build up a comfortable lead in the east would you classify Bryce Harper's 2017 as the most interesting season in the majors it might be when we did a staff group post at the ringer last week about things we were excited about in the season that was the thing I picked because it's almost like we're gonna get an answer to a decade of wondering how good Bryce Harper's gonna be this year and that's not really true he's still what 24 or something so (laughs) it's not like what he does this season is gonna settle anything for the rest of the course of his career but If he has another big season this year, then I think that settles any remaining questions about his talent. Because right now he's had, what, five seasons, and one of them has been extraordinary, and the others have all just been kind of okay. Like in that post I pointed out that basically he's been the best player in baseball one year and Cole Calhoun the other four years, (laughs) which is uh, still impressive given his age and everything. But he was just kind of a pretty good hitter who got banged up a lot and was a decent defender and it just wasn't all that exciting if you hadn't known about his phenom status going back to his mid-teen years so if he has a second big season then I think we can dismiss any idea that it was a weird fluky stat cast year or something and we can start projecting him as a hall of famer again Mm -hmm. but if he has a Another middling year, then, well, that's less decisive, I guess, because he'll still be young enough that people will (laughs) continue to expect him to have another big year. So it's not uh, definitive, but it has the potential, at least, if he has that big year, to settle the mystery. Yeah, I guess how old was Brady Anderson when he did his thing? 32. Okay, that one's just bizarre. So I don't know. I don't know what it was like to live through that, but... Now that Harper reached that level, I guess now this doesn't need to be a Bryce Harper podcast, but since he reached that level once at such a young age, I think that seems like one of those things that'll just never be forgotten. Uh-huh. 
I guess kind of like when Adrian Beltre had that like nine or 10 win year when he was like 23 or 24 and then the Mariners signed him and then he never got close to that, which just led to him being severely underrated for like an entire decade before he finally reemerged as basically a wonderful and universally beloved player and virtually certain Hall of Famer. Mm -hmm. So those those early peaks are very, very difficult for people to get out of their heads. And I wonder what it would be like if we had stat cast information for Beltre's big breakout. Yeah. So Yasiel Puig. Yes, I was going to bring him up too. Yasiel Puig. I did not have a strong opinion. So maybe maybe I should say that points of interest, forget strong opinions, but players are teams of interest before the year and mm-hmm. looking for early results. So encouragingly, Yasiel Puig, so far this year, he's walked one, two, three times. I think he's only struck out once or twice. He's also hit three home runs. So if you look at the numbers, you think Yasiel Puig is off to a absolutely fantastic start and if Puig is back to being a superstar well I don't know what could possibly stop the Dodgers so I will of course let you issue whatever statement you'd like to say but what I will say is that when I click on Yasiel Puig's play log the uh the top two lines are Yasiel Puig homered off Jared Weaver and Yasiel (laughs) Puig homered off Jared Weaver he also has homered against Trevor Cahill good for him but this is one of those situations where I believe that he homered off for basically 84 mile per hour fastballs at the belt. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if there's anything to be learned from this, except that Yasiel Puig hasn't lost the ability to hit a home run. Yeah, because that was the critique of him or the thing that scouts would be reported to say, right, that he had slowed down and that he could hit triple A pitching still, but just was vulnerable to major league pitching. So Jared Weaver is triple A pitching <laughs> if you're being charitable. So that in itself doesn't necessarily tell you that much, I suppose, although not every other Dodgers hitter hit two home runs against Jared Weaver. So relative true. to the other guys, he's still doing well, but I think I'm on record as being optimistic about Puig before he had a good start to the season. So I guess I can say that. It it just always struck me as surprising that people would start saying that he was a fundamentally different guy at 25 or 26 than he had been a few years earlier. He was just young to get that kind of report, I thought. And, And I guess he had thickened up, but we've seen him drop weight and add weight and go up and down and it it didn't seem at all implausible to me that he could dedicate himself and get into better shape again and be a good player again so like i remember last year there were debates on sports writers blues between any mccullough and pedro mora and as usual pedro was right i love you andy <laughs> but, but pedro's always right and uh they were talking about i think basically like how many wins above replacement they expected Puig to have in the rest of his career. And they set the over under at like nine or something. Mm-hmm. And I th- I think Andy was under cause he just didn't like what he had seen and what he'd heard from evaluators. And Pedro was over basically just because Puig had been so good early in his career and clearly had a lot of talent and it just seemed too young to give up on him. And I was more in that camp. So I suppose this start to the season has slightly strengthened my optimism about that, but, you know, only to a a certain extent. And because I was always surprised, I I think, I don't know, I wrote about it, maybe you wrote about it too, but there were real adjustments that Puig made, like in his second season or whatever, like he seemed to 
be an intelligent hitter who could counter pitchers approach against him like there was definitely a time when he was laying off pitches more and he was being more selective and he was walking a bunch and it just seemed like he wasn't just the guy who is good when he comes up and then the league figures him out and he's bad. It seemed like there was more to him than that. So I was surprised and dismayed that he seemed to regress in that regard last year and in the last couple of years. Yeah, and then last year there was just that a very simple approach that pitchers could take where they would just throw him an inside fastball, then a slider away, then an inside fastball, then a slider away, and he seemed pretty helpless. Yeah. But, I mean, he did end up with decent numbers at the end, so I think Puig lends himself to strong opinions on whether he's going to be great or whether he's going to be terrible. I think that, I guess, kind of similar to Bryce Harper, people don't want to hear someone take the opinion that I think he's going to be a fine above average player because that's not interesting, (laughs) but it's still very difficult to be a fine above average player. And you know who deserves a little more respect is Cole Calhoun. That's a fine, (laughs) that's a fine outcome for many players. Byron Buxton, Mm -hmm. Byron Buxton. Yeah. If there's a player who is trying to have a season of as much interest as Bryce Harper, I think this would be Buxton's. Yes. Uh, I don't know. He's not quite on the Harper level because Buxton is a little more of a baseball nerd name and not a not a household name. But no matter what you thought about Buxton coming into the year, how have your thoughts changed, if at all, based on three games? Yeah. So I just wrote about him a couple weeks ago and I talked to him and I did a deep dive into his September when he was tied for the major league lead in wins above replacement. And it seemed like we were watching a breakout and I kind of hedged, like I didn't say it was a mirage and I didn't say that was the beginning of the breakout and he's awesome now. It wasn't clear to me that either of those things was true. He was continuing to show great tools and talent and the thing that made him the consensus best prospect in baseball for years But even when he was hitting for power and playing good defense and doing well in the bases, he was striking out very often. And he told me that he thought he could succeed while striking out that often. But it's a tough thing to do unless you really do have great power. And I wasn't convinced that he would. So, yeah, through the first three games, he has... What is it now? Seven strikeouts in 15 play appearances. <laughs> yeah, so, with one single. Yeah, that's uh, that's not good. And he has some of those strikeouts just based on a couple of clips I've seen have been pretty ugly. Like it doesn't seem like he necessarily knows what the strike zone is and his O-swing rate, his rate of chasing pitches outside the strike zone right now is 39.3%, which is pretty abysmal. The the league average is around 30%, and he was uh, right around that, maybe a little bit above that last year. But in this extremely small sample, he has shown even less discipline and sense of the strike zone's dimensions. So not good. You know, these are things that stabilize quickly, swing rates and strikeout rates, but not so quickly that you can tell that much in three games probably but still not much he could have done to dampen the preseason enthusiasm about himself (laughs) that he hasn't done in these three games and especially because in the spring he was striking out less often and it seemed like maybe there was a, a meaningful change there it looks like from his play log that his one hit is an infield single to third base off of Chris Young. He has also struck out twice with the bases loaded against Peter Moylan, who is not a strikeout pitcher. So Byron Buxton, very rough three days. You have a player or should I just keep giving players or teams? 
Yeah, keep going. I like this. Dylan Bundy. Mm, okay. Dylan Bundy. Here's the reason why this, I guess this case is firstly interesting because, hey, last year Dylan Bundy finally emerged and he became a, a pitcher of notice again. But the big story coming into this season is that Dylan Bundy was finally going to be able to throw his cutter or slider uh, again, which is a pitch that was considered, I think, one of, if not the best pitch in the minors when he was coming up or when he was drafted or something like that. In any case, Bundy. Really great cutter, but the Orioles don't like cutters. I don't know where they decide the line is between a cutter and a slider. I don't think anybody really quite knows where that line is, but they had Bundy stop throwing his best pitch when he was coming up the ladder. Last year, according to Brooks Baseball, he threw the slider or cutter looks like zero times, and he uh, he had the success that he did. So he is now one start in. He faced the Blue Jays. According to, again, Brooks Baseball, he threw 31 sliders. He threw them an average of about 86 miles per hour. And the Blue Jays swung through. Do you have any guesses? 12. 14. 14 swings and misses at his slider alone. They swung at about three quarters of them. Pitch was barely ever a ball. The movement looked incredible. We were one start in. Has your opinion changed on Dylan Bundy at all? I think so. That's the one case where you can maybe feel comfortable actually allowing yourself to be swayed by a single game or week, right? If a pitcher adds a new pitch or has some pitch that seems dramatically different. So yeah, I'll say so. We were talking about it in the Ringers Slack channel and my editor, Mallory Rubin, who's a huge Orioles fan, was celebrating every pitch that he was throwing and she celebrated that he struck out the side in the first inning and I had some cruel remark about one inning down 74 to go or something (laughs) because like that's the even greater concern with him is can he stay healthy because he looked really good for a time last year but then seemed to succumb to fatigue and he's never pitched anywhere close to a, a full season really so Question is, if he is that good, how long can he stay at that level before he breaks down or gets tired or has to be spelled for a while so that he could pitch later in the season? But yeah, still reason for optimism, I think. So Dylan Bundy, potential ace of the Orioles for three months, which Uh is something that I guess that's still three months better than what they had coming into the year. Yeah. James Baxton. James Baxton, Ah, my boy had a big, big 2016 season. He reworked his mechanics very simply. He just lowered his arm slot, and all of a sudden, he was throwing a lot harder and throwing a lot more strikes, which are two very good things for a pitcher to do. He has started one game so far this year, and if you look at his reported velocities, he's still throwing really hard. He's still similar to where he was last year. It's, of course, his first start of the year. He threw a bunch of curveballs. He only walked, I think, one hitter out of 23 he missed some bats and i think the the most remarkable thing that paxton did as far as i'm concerned is he actually missed a few bats with his curveball which is a pitch that hasn't been a big swing and miss pitch before so i think i was already way on board with paxton we'll see what you thought about paxton coming in but what this has done is helped sort of support uh, my position and i now have even more an increased level of confidence in the pitcher in whom I had the most confidence already on his team. Yeah, well, your confidence was inspiring, I think. I had already been largely convinced by your confidence. So he's kind of another guy, not to the extent that Bundy is, but he is another guy who doesn't have a very long record of pitching full seasons for less concerning reasons, I would say, than than Bundy, more 
freakish type injuries than ones that you expect to be chronic, but still another guy maybe you worry about breaking down. But you had uh, basically already made me a a complete believer, so (laughs) I remain one. Okay, Charlie Morton. This is a subtle one, but I liked the Morton pickup that the Astros made because even though he only started four games last year before he got injured, which is a very Charlie Morton thing to do, it was an injury to his leg. But most encouragingly, last year with the Phillies, when Morton did get to pitch, his fastball was faster than it had been the year before by two miles per hour. He also had a cutter. He was throwing around 90 and he missed a lot more bats. He was always a pitch to contact kind of grand ball guy. And this time he became a pitch away from contact, still kind of grand ball guy in an embarrassingly small sample of 17.1 innings. So the Astros mm-hmm. signed that guy to a two-year contract worth, I think, $14 million. That part doesn't matter. He has started one game against the Mariners. In that game, his fastball was between 94 and 94, five miles per hour, and he was throwing a cutter in the high 80s. So Charlie Morton, again, I think that this is a situation where he hasn't so much changed my opinion as he has improved my level of confidence in it but Uh i like charlie morton as one of the reasons why i think the astros pitching staff at present is underrated yeah right and chris davinsky looked great in a four inning relief appearance that is uh, that is a sexy pitching style yeah i mean that's basically what he did all last year so i don't know if it changes anything but i think awareness of what he did last year has been building so Mm -hmm. I mean, if he can keep doing that, that is a unique type of pitcher, really. And he has been almost uniquely effective in that role. So that's pretty exciting. Dallas Keuchel was also good in his first start. I don't know whether there was as much reason for optimism in that start or not. But just the fact that he had a good one is a change from the way he started last season. So, yeah, good signs all around for the Astros in the one area where they seem to be vulnerable. Did uh, Matt Harvey do anything <laughs> at all to change your expectations in his first start, which was also fairly successful? His velocity, he averaged 94, which uh, was about a mile per hour down from last year. Of course, it's April. The difference you could say maybe is that he topped out at 95.8, which uh he used to top out at 99, 100. So maybe he doesn't quite have the top end anymore, but he, as an average, hasn't fallen that far. Did he look to you if you saw him or studied him at all, like close enough to the old Matt Harvey that Mets fans should be cheered? It's funny that you brought him up because he was going to be the next player I brought up too. I just ah. loaded his page as you said his first name. <laughs> so. Yeah, so Harvey has gotten one start in. I know there was some amount of consternation regarding his spring training. His velocity was down, and then it kind of built up, and there were some questions whether he would ever be Matt Harvey again. The encouraging thing to me is that he threw a ton of strikes. I don't know his exact rate, but, I mean, this is easy enough to figure out. 55 divided by 77. He threw 71% strikes. There are some issues right now still with like pitch tracking and location and all that, but what mm-hmm. I can tell you is that just in this one start, he threw like nearly two-thirds of his pitches in the strike zone, which is a crazy high rate. He was basically pounding the zone in a sort of Bartolo Colon turned up to 11 sort of extreme. He didn't miss a lot of bats, but I mean, when you are facing the Braves, there's really, you don't have to be that careful. Uh, I know Matt Kemp, I believe, tagged him a couple times, so it's not like Harvey went unpunished, but it was a very aggressive version of Matt Harvey. 
And the velocity is, I mean, it's still not bad, of course, when you're throwing 93, 94, that's pretty good stuff, especially this early, and you're still building up your arm strength. So I think I have very slightly reduced confidence that Harvey can ever get back to his peak, where he was when he had his, like, 2013 season. Mm-hmm. But I have a great deal of confidence. I guess I should have said 2015 season. It's just good in both. But I have a, a great deal of confidence after seeing Harvey be so aggressive that he will be better than he was last mm-hmm. season. Right. Okay. Anyone else on your list? I don't know if this one's fair, but Garrett Richards. Mm, yeah. A fascinating 2016 and winter because he tore his UCL and then didn't have it cut open or I guess uh-huh. cut have his arm cut open to get to his UCL. He had a platelet-rich plasma injection, also some stem cell treatment, and so he avoided Tommy John surgery, and it seemed like he was going to be a, I guess, pioneer, a potential pioneer of stem cell treatment for a specific type of torn UCL. He pitched in the fall. He pitched in spring training. His velocity was way up, and so it seemed like there was... There was real promise here, Garrett Richards, potentially being able to skip Tommy John surgery and come back with an alternative treatment. When I say that, it sounds like he was hypnotized, but I mean like just a non-surgical treatment. He comes back, he starts his first game for the Angels, and he's throwing super hard. He actually, let's see, according to the Fangraphs page, he had his best ever career velocity, which is insane. His slider was over 90. His fastball was nearly 97. He didn't throw any changeups, but maybe that'll come back one day. That was sort of my my big project for early 2016 was monitoring Garrett Richards' changeups, and then he <laughs> injured his arm. So yeah. Garrett Richards comes out. He's throwing super hard, and after four innings and two-thirds, he points to his arm, and he comes out of the game. So where are we on Garrett Richards? Yeah, so the Angels are saying that it's unrelated to his issues from last year, which could be the case. Of course, you always wonder whether maybe someone changes something as a result of prior issues, and then that causes a cascade that affects them in some other area. So it could be an injury to a different part of his body that is in some way related to the old injury. And I mean, just on its own, if a biceps cramp or whatever it was is actually the problem, then there's no reason to think that that's that serious an issue. I mean, I don't know, like it just, it's a, it's an arm injury for a guy who had an arm injury and that's (laughs) going to be scary. Obviously it's not like he pulled a muscle or something in some other part of his body, although even that kind of thing can be related to a change in your delivery. So I don't want to say, well, he like the first tweet I saw in response to, I think it was a Jeff Fletcher tweet about the injury, just when he walked off the field, the first reply to that tweet was, well, he should have had the surgery, which, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to have that kind of response to God. that because it's uh, very premature to say something like that. But I think you'd probably be fair to revise your estimate of how healthy he's likely to be this year just slightly down i mean you you do that with any pitcher who hurts himself in some way but probably more so for a pitcher who missed almost all of last year with an arm injury even if it's not the same part of the arm so i would say that's kind of scary because the angels whole season essentially is pinned on his hopes i think you wrote that over the the winter right that he's like one of the most pivotal players because they're kind of i mean to come up with a scenario where the angels compete you really need 
him to be great again and this i would say makes that slightly less likely how Mm -hmm. less likely i don't know exactly Okay, well, I guess let's let's lightning around through a couple of these. We'll just okay. we'll look at some teams in the Western Division. So Texas Rangers, overall, any change in your opinion of the Texas Rangers? Two things I will choose to point out. Sam Dyson has pitched the equivalent of one inning and allowed eight runs, which is bad. <laughs> yeah. That's worse, actually, than Kristen Bethencourt. So bad on you, Sam Dyson. He's their closer, pitched a contact closer who's pitched to too much contact. And the other thing that draws my attention Hugh Darvish in his first start of the season, 6.1 innings, five walks, two wild pitches, four strikeouts, but a little bit wild. So any reason for you, also they're they're 0-3, I should have mentioned that part, the wins are (laughs) what also matter. Any reason for you to have a different opinion about the Rangers, go quick. I don't know what to make of the Darvish thing. He was basically his old self in the second half of last season after he came back from Tommy John. You'd expect his control, or at least that's the common wisdom about Tommy John, that the control would improve after that. Although I think Patrick Dubuque maybe did a study on that that didn't really support it so much. But anyway, that's what you would expect. Another year removed from the surgery would be good for him. So somewhat worrisome. Four wild pitches, you say? That's a lot of wild pitches. Uh, Two wild pitches, but four walks. Five walks. Five walks. Yeah, that's a lot of walks. So I don't know. Eh, I probably... Wouldn't make too much of that. As for Dyson, I think the Rangers' bullpen is deep enough that I don't know how much that scares me. I mean, it's a little shorthanded because Diekman is out till midseason at least, and mm-hmm. someone else is hurt too, right? Was it Keela or? Oh, Keela has been demoted because of some, let's say, maturity problems. Right, exactly. So not great if Dyson is not his old self either, but. They do have a bunch of guys who could be capable of late-inning relief, and it seemed like in spring training they were sort of experimenting with a bunch of those guys and using them for multiple innings or in high-leverage roles. And it's weird because they had like one of the worst bullpen ERAs last year, or maybe the worst, and yet they had that great 1-1 record, and it seemed to be because they had... A bunch of garbage relievers in the back who weren't pitching important innings or who were there at the beginning of the season. But by the time they got down to the wire, they had a a really good late inning combo. So I would not change my expectations of the Rangers that much, but I was already probably somewhat down on the Rangers relative to most people anyway. So maybe that's why. Yeah, I'd bump them down a percentage point or two. I think yeah. The, one of the big problems last year is that in like April and May, their bullpen is just awful because Sean Tolleson forgot how to pitch and Tom Wilhelmson forgot how to pitch too. And so their ERA just took off mm-hmm. and then they got better from there. But anyway, yeah, down a little bit. Uh, Oakland Athletics, real quick, they are two and two, which whatever, I don't care. Mm-hmm. Most of the coverage that we've all seen, I think, in the early going has relates to pitchers and that's because pitchers are fun and their stuff stabilizes pretty quickly what i like the most about the athletics i wrote two posts about him on the same day kendall graveman is suddenly his his velocity just keeps getting better and better where he came up to the majors throwing 90 and now he's touching 97 to 98 i checked with the athletics themselves just to confirm that this is actually real and and they said that in his last three starts of the spring they had their video guy he was sitting behind home plate uh, recording pitches because i guess they didn't have any other means of doing that (laughs) And they had Graveman not sitting at, but touching 97 to 98 in each of his last three spring training starts. So this is not a mirage. 
Uh, the A's already would talk about Kendall Graveman as an ace, which I thought was not quite deserved, but mm-hmm. whatever. He had a, a low ERA in the second half, throws strikes, gets grounders. Anyway, he comes out, he's throwing 94-95. All of a sudden, if he's a ground ball pitcher who throws strikes and misses a few more bats, then that is a very high-quality starting pitcher. So sort of based on Graveman alone, and I like some of what I've seen from their bullpen, I... I've liked the A's as sort of a, a secret wild card contender, which I know doesn't mean much in the American League where every team is a wild card contender. But so far, I've seen a little more good than bad. I only wish that Andrew Triggs had missed a few more bats in his first start. Right. Yeah, I don't know. You are uh, probably paying more attention to the A's than almost everyone else other than A's fans <laughs> right now. So I can't say I had done a, a whole lot of detailed study on them before that. But uh, sure. Those sound like good reasons to be <laughs> excited about Kendall Graveman. Okay, last thing. Actually, well, second to last thing, I will point out real quick, a hot breaking news update in a podcast that is not being published immediately. ESPN's Jerry Krasnick reports that the Braves have discussed Ryan Rayburn as they look to upgrade their bench. Ooh, it's happening, right. you guys. It's happening. Yeah. Yeah, everyone we talked about getting released that week actually has been picked up again. The Nationals <laughs> released Matt Albers, but then re-signed him almost immediately. Uh-huh. And uh, Ryan Webb was signed to a minor league contract by the Giants. So everyone's back in play. That's right. These players come back. So, okay, the last thing real quick. Colorado Rockies, Adam Ottavino, he's been healthy. So we know he's fine. Greg Holland, so far, he's faced nine batters. He struck out four, has not allowed a walk. And Carlos Estevez, I don't really know him that well but hey he throws super hard he's gotten some strikeouts but he's faced the brewers i don't know if that counts maybe most encouragingly jake mcgee he's only thrown five pitches i don't know what the deal is with his usage pattern but he has thrown his fastball at 96 miles per hour which Mm -hmm. is way faster than last year when he was bad it's faster than 2015 when he was good it's back to the level of 2014 when he was great So what I would say is that in the extremely early going, I already was intrigued by the Rockies bullpen. But if if they have Jake McGee and Greg Holland actually pitching well and sort of close to where they were, this Rockies team is going to be a potential terror to face. A terror Mm. is the word that I would use. (laughs) Yeah, although Dave Cameron just did a, a post about how the Diamondbacks seem to have discovered a couple good relievers, too. And that was... A big concern about them that seemed to be the missing piece on that team that they didn't really have a great bullpen and now they have Archie Bradley who looks good. He's probably a guy we could have talked about earlier in this episode and I think who's the other one? Jorge De La Rosa I think was the other one that uh, Dave pointed out. So if the Rockies are picking up a couple of good relievers, so are one of their division rivals. Yeah, let's see. Bradley, his fastball seems to be up about three miles per hour. That's a lot. Jorge De La Rosa, his fastball seems to be up four miles per hour. That's a lot. Okay, so this is is all you need to do. Take starters, make them relievers. Boom, you have great relievers. Now you just need starters. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Last thing. I don't know if this is self-promotion or promotion of Mike Trout, but on Sunday, (laughs) there is a, a documentary on Mike Trout airing for the first time on MLB Network at 8 p.m. Eastern. It's called Mike Trout, Millville to MVP. I think it's an hour-long documentary about Trout, and I am in it. I don't know exactly to what extent, but someone who has seen it has told me that I'm in it a few times. I went out there to be a talking head who gets uh, 
cut to in the documentary in the dark room with no background to say things about the player. So I uh, did talk about weird Mike Trout hypotheticals during the interview, and I brought (laughs) up how everyone who listens to the podcast always wants to handicap Mike Trout somehow and ask if he'd still be good. No idea whether that made it into the documentary. Probably not, but you never know. I will find out along with you. So check it out, 8 p.m. Eastern, MLB Network. Fantastic. Well, I I guess if they cut out all that stuff, we could just release our own Mike Trout Effectively (laughs) Wild documentary comprised entirely of Mike Trout hypotheticals in which he has been handicapped in some way. That is basically what this podcast already is. (laughs) All right. So that's it for this week. I'd say that we should have a moment of silence for Rich Hill's blistered finger, but we can all do that on our own time this weekend. Get well soon, Rich. We hope your blister won't last all season. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Five listeners who have already pledged their support include Sean Harada, Leith McKindawar, Dan Miller, Michael DePaula, and David McDonald. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectivelywild, and you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes. Keep your questions coming to me and Jeff at podcast at fangraphs.com or by contacting us through the Patreon messaging system. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for editing assistance. We hope you do have a wonderful weekend. Enjoy the documentary. We will talk to you next week. I miss you.